Hi friends, I'm excited to present a new episode of Smart Council, but this one needs a little explanation. I have the delightful honor of walking between worlds, spirituality, psychology and counseling, addictions, social justice, and everything about sexuality are all important to me and have met incredible people in all of these communities. In my personal and professional life, I'm always working to integrate the best of all these worlds into one cohesive framework for how to thrive and help others. One of my favorite things to do is working to build bridges of communication and understanding between my different communities. This often means bringing together people and ideas that don't always understand each other or get along. This can be uncomfortable, but I believe the tension is good for us. If we are ever to resolve our conflicts and live peaceably with each other, we need to be able to understand each other first, and that means being able to listen to things that might make us bristle a little bit. So, here's the context of the episode. I was invited to speak at an evangelical church about the topic of healthy sexuality in the abundant life. Now, the abundant life is Christianese for living to your fullest potential. Since I work closely with sexual addictions and with matters of gender and sexuality, they wanted to know my thoughts. This presented a really cool opportunity and an interesting challenge. How would I translate all the clinical verbiage and science I've picked up, as well as a sex-positive attitude, into language and a form that my listeners could hear, understand, and maybe open to pondering further? In order to build a bridge with this corner of the evangelical community and not alienate or overwhelm them, I chose to speak in terms familiar to this community and to pay respects to their core values. In this case, that meant primarily describing healthy sexuality in terms of traditional heteronormativity. At other points in the lecture, I talk about sex as a sacrament, which is a thought that's derived from my faith practice as an Orthodox Christian. I also talked about sexual abstinence. Now here's what I want the listener to understand. Regardless of choices that I make from my personal sexual expression, I cast no judgment at all on any person for any sexual choice they make, and this goes for me as a person and as a professional. In no circle of my life, and certainly not in my practice, will I ever discriminate against any person of any sexual orientation or practice. At the same time, I do actively seek to practice counseling, especially around sexual matters, in a sex-positive and trauma-informed manner, in support of healthy, connective, and shame-free sexual intimacy. Further, when I make reference to the sexual ethic of the Orthodox Christianity, let the reader understand that the Orthodox sexual ethic is for Orthodox Christians. It is one aspect of a multifaceted holistic faith tradition. Appropriating the sexual standards apart from the rest of the tradition does an injustice to the tradition and may be unhealthy for the practitioner. The Orthodox tradition is meant to be taken as a whole. If you, the listener, do not take the whole tradition, then feel free to skip over the sexual ethic as well. Otherwise, in this talk, I discuss some facets of compulsive behavior, different ideas about the purpose of sex, and the difference between intensity and intimacy. Please reach out to me if this episode brings up questions for you. I'm always happy to dialogue further. Thanks for listening, and let's keep the conversation going. Um, yeah, like we said, my name is Reese Basimio. I'm a professionally, I'm a licensed professional counselor. I'm a certified alcohol and drug counselor level two. I'm a certified sex addiction therapist candidate 
and sometimes adjunct professor at uh, Multnomah University. I have a private practice in um, Gresham, Oregon, New Pattern Counseling. Um, I co-produced the podcast Smart Counsel, which is uh, perspectives and resources on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. And we have a lot of fun on that one. Uh, personally speaking, I'm an uh, Orthodox Christian, husband of one wife, father to two and a half kids, third one coming in April, and um, writer, teacher, counselor, and hopefully more of a healing presence than not for people. So tonight, I get to explore this idea of uh, sex in relation to the abundant life, or I'm interpreting that as exploring just what is healthy sexuality in relation to the brain and addictive compulsive behaviors and a lot of fun topics like that. Okay, so uh, sex and the abundant life. Uh, but first, a story. So, uh, so Lolo and Lola, um, my dad's uh, father and mother, um, my Lola June, memory eternal, and my Lola Jesse, who is probably the closest we have to a living saint on that side of my family. Um, so, so there we were. Me and my then fiance, now wife, in the year 2007 in uh, Southern California. And we, it was my first time uh, presenting her to uh, my dad's side of the family. Uh, if you've seen like, my big fat Greek wedding, picture that, only Filipino, and that's my family. Um, and so in the midst of all of, the, all of the holiday hubbub and loudness, we sat down, my wife and I, with my, with my grandparents, and we were telling them, hey, yeah, we're, we're getting ready to get married. And they, in their, in their typical, you know, wise, whimsical fashion, they're in between telling us about their, their, their elderly married life at like 50 plus years, and uh, midnight shenanigans, helping each other with medical problems, and like, you know, being up all night in the bathroom, supporting each other in like all of these really, really, really personal ways. Um, you know, at some point in there, they, they're asking us, you know, do you have any idea what you're getting yourself into? And, you know, we politely say, ah, no, not really. And, you know, the next year we find out how actually true that really was. Um, so, and somewhere in there, as they're telling us about their, their elderly married life and their long history together and how much they love each other, somewhere my Lola drops in this, this just offhand comment of like, you know, oh yeah, these married couples these days, they're, they're all about, you know, sex and, you know, more sex. And if they're not having sex, they know they're not happy. Then they divorce me and your Lolo. We haven't had sex since 1983. And <laughs> which was the year I was born. So, uh, <laughs> so, so, so there's that the, the, the absence of sex in their marriage and the presence of like increasing health difficulties. Uh, and yeah, you look at them, you look at them for not very long and you see there, there is not a more loving couple. There is not a more physically affectionate couple. There, there is not a more loyal couple. I mean, maybe Abraham and Sarah, but uh, not, not, not a whole lot. So, um, so we, we, we've often thought about that encounter, um, my wife and I, in terms of understanding what makes for healthy relationships, uh, what makes, and you could ask there too, what, it, what is the role of sex in a healthy relationship, in, in a healthy long-term relationship? So, um, so kind of what I, what I get to explore um, tonight is, well, what, it, what does that mean? In order to have a healthy, loving, intimate relationship, uh, do you need sex? If you do, like how much and what kind and uh, what needs to go into that? Or, you know, should, should you not have sex? And, and there's a lot of questions there. 
Um, so, so, so this question, you know, am I just talking to, to married couples? Uh, sort of yes, sort of no. So the, in, my, in my professional world, I work with a, I work with a, a really general population and uh, work with some, some Christian folks, some non-Christian folks, some very conservative folks, some very uh, liberal progressive folks. I work with heterosexual people. I work with queer people and um, uh, so, so a lot of things. So my understanding of healthy sexuality is how to navigate around all of that. I definitely have an idea of what healthy sexuality would look like within specifically a Christian context. And I also have an idea of what healthy sexuality looks like just in a general context. So what I'm going to do tonight is share some more general thoughts, healthy sexuality in general, which could apply to a conventional heteronormative couple, it's a man and a woman, one man, one woman. Uh, but a lot of this could also apply to a same-sex couple, some open relationships, um, some dating relationships. So, um, so you can take what you will, reject what you want. Uh, I'll probably start with more like the general themes and move in closer to like more of a more of a Christian-specific approach to this. So that's that's what I'm planning. Uh, okay, so. What I'd like to do for a minute is have you all get into groups of like three or four and talk amongst yourselves for just a minute. What is the purpose of sex? Or what are the, the many purposes of sex? Um, if you've got a pad of paper or a phone or something and you want to make a quick list, uh, go ahead and do that for a few minutes and then we'll see what you come up with. All right, so thanks for compiling a list. So... Our thoughts, uh, your all thoughts, on what is the purpose of sex, this wonderful, mystical, magical, awkward, messy thing we do. Uh, purposes, we said procreation, enjoyment, uh, intimacy, or we'd say oneness. We could maybe also say unity. Uh, we identified it's, there's a physical need component as well as a comfort component. Uh, on the dark side of it, it could be used for control. Totally a thing. Uh, there's this idea of being, of being like a balm of marriage or a balm of relationships and um, part of the, the, the grease that makes it go. Uh, it's a way, one way of growing in love. It's one way of discovering the inner beauty of the other person, which is an interesting counterpart to the preoccupation with uh, physical attraction. That, that's an interesting difference to note. Um, and we talked about that as being a way of knowing and learning the other person, knowing about the other person, learning who the other person is. Uh, <clears throat> sex also being a way of expressing love. Uh, there could be a component of compatibility that's interesting, that's part of that. Uh, sex facilitates emotional connection and growing together. Yes, one more. Ah. There is a component of sacrifice to it, or there can be. Uh, there can be a way that um, when you engage in sex with your partner, your husband, your wife, in this context, uh, that you are serving them, that you are caring for them in a very particular way. And uh, one of the interesting scenarios to consider is, well, my husband wants sex, my wife wants sex, my partner wants sex. I'm not in the mood. What do I do? You know, what that do I do? <laughs> I can't say that here. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, why do I start here with purpose of sex? So something we pull from our philosophical friends, um, the, the why of a thing has a lot to do with the ideal how. And if you know the why, you 
have a better shot at knowing the, the ideal how and, and the proper what's. So uh, some things to, to consider. Um, so like we said, so some of the major themes that come out of a question like this, uh, you, know, you know, on the dark side, you know, you can use sex as an escape. Uh, when I talk about sex addiction, pornography addiction, compulsive sexual behavior, that's a big part of it, uh, as well as the control. Uh, people use sexual behaviors to escape the reality, to escape their feelings, to escape their body, uh, and also sometimes to to you know assert dominance, control over other people. You know, when you when, that's where rape would be. Yeah, rape, sexual assault, you know, gaslighting, harassment, um, you know, objectifying. Um, all all of that is is a means of control, and that's only in the physical realm. There's a lot of uh, emotional abuse that can happen as well. Um, so. There's a lot to talk about there. Other, <clears throat> other major themes and purpose, um, pleasure, and a lot of variance therein. Um, reproduction, it definitely happens. Um, unification, that intimacy, oneness, those are major themes. And sacrament, which is something that didn't come up there, but I'm going to bring up a little bit later. It's kind of a specifically orthodox thing, but I'm going to introduce it here anyway. So, okay, the, the why informs the idea how. So when we're talking about what is healthy sex, what is abundant sex, some factors to consider. Uh, you know, is it just having lots of sex with lots of people? Uh, there are some people who would say, yeah, my, my abundant ideal, my ideal, my ideal of abundant sex is I just want to have a lot of it. I want, you know, the, the most, the hottest, the hottest orgasm I can get as often as I can get it with however many people I can get it. And I want my partner to be ridiculously good looking all of the time. That's, that's the approach that some people take. I, I definitely, I, I work with one individual who like, I mean, he's, he said very explicitly like, yeah, like I, my core value is like, I want, I want to do what I want to do. Um, and I want to have whatever I want to have. I'm like, oh, okay. I mean, <laughs> that particular value has some <laughs> repercussions in your life, but okay, we'll go with that. Uh, so lots of sex with lots of people, Lots of sex with one person, that might be good for at least one of those people. Um, is abundant sex having really interesting sex? Um, and you get questions about like, well, what is the role of like sexual explorations? And uh, what if I want to try some of that, that, that kinky stuff? You know, um, is that okay or not? Should I or not? You know, is oral sex okay? Is, you know, what do we do with masturbation? Um, there's questions like that. Um, this or that pose, we're not going to go through the Kama Sutra, but you know, it's there. Uh, or is it having really emotional sex? So uh, is the abundant sexual life really more oriented around relationships and the romance? Romance can be its own obsession and its own, uh, its own addiction, um, but that's what some people prefer. Uh, is it having really spontaneous sex? Like the, we see each other, we run to each other across the room, we make love on the table, and then all of it's neatly cleaned and put away because it happens that way in the movies. Um, <laughs> like in the movie sex, yeah, uh, that we, we probably wouldn't want to admit that to ourselves, but my, my guess is, I know this happens for me anyway, like I, my ideal expectations for what my marriage and sex life should look like have been impacted by what I see in TV and how I see relationships play out um, in this perfectly constructed digital world. And it's unattainable, completely unattainable. Um, and there's there's definitely some alarming dynamics when we consider you know like lots of lots of people who um, a lot of the younger generation who a lot of their sex education has primarily been through porn 
And so they come to me and we're trying to talk healthy sexuality. The only paradigm they have is what they see on, on the porn screen, which again is unsustainable in real life and really damaging anyway. Um, but, but then, but we're talking what, what's, what's the base paradigm you have? What's the instinctive starting point? That is one of the starting points. Um, is the, is ideal sex having babies? Is it having safe sex? Is it being a virgin and then having only married sex? Is it avoiding sex altogether? Um, there's all of these variants that can happen. And again, depending on, here, here I have some of, the, some of the major themes that can come up for purpose of sex, escape, control, pleasure, reproduction, unification. I would say like, like the, these bottom four, pleasure, reproduction, unification, sacrament, um, there's good things there. There's good things, th those, those are good. Those are good purposes to consider. Um, how they're ordered is gonna have a, have, a have a big impact, which we're gonna talk about a little bit. Um, you can't value all of those equally because some of them are gonna start canceling each other out. So, so let's get into that a little bit. Uh, and again, um, if at any point, I mean, I'll save some time for questions, but if you have something burning in your head, um, raise your hand, we'll, we'll work it in, because it's good. Okay, so what happens if in setting a paradigm for what, what, is, what is healthy sex, what is the, the abundant sexual life, what happens if you give uh, pleasure recreation the place of primacy? What happens if you say, this is, the, this is the most important aspect of sex and the core value here? So uh, I have a list of some pros and cons. So pros of saying pleasure is the most important thing. Uh, that sort of sex life is exciting because um, you're having a lot of sex uh, and it can be fun. It can be fun. Um, there, some people experience a, a measure of freedom here. Maybe some of y'all in, um, in your other days, maybe you've experienced this idea of you know, casting off all restraints and all the restrictions and ignoring the advice of those old people uh, and going and doing what you want. There, there can be something kind of thrilling about that. And honestly, some people experience that as kind of empowering. To, to, to strike out and say, I need to explore something, I need to experiment, I need to maybe make some mistakes but learn from them. Uh, some, people, some people find that empowering. It can be very costly and it can be very messy, um, but, um, but I mean a lot of us have done costly, messy things before and ideally we learn from them. So, slight note, you know, say you're, say you're watching somebody do these costly, messy, chaotic, dramatic things that you kind of know are going to hurt them. We'd like it if we could save them from the pain. The reality is probably can't. So the best thing we can do is to be present with them, to be you know, faithful to that relationship with the person and to, to be open to you know, listening to them and talking with them about like, how they're feeling about it. And you, know, you can model, you, know, you model stability, you model health, and you know when a person has kind of run the course of their their experiments and their exploration and, and questions, you know a lot of people do get to a point where they're ready to settle into some mode of stability. Sometimes they need help with that. So if they know that hey, there's at least one person who you know isn't freaked out by my whole story, uh, that can be really helpful. Uh, other other perks of that. So you know the novelty, the experimentation, the exploration we talked about. Um, <clears throat> That can be cool. Some people are into that, and and that can be important for people. Uh, there's also a way too, like uh, you know, those of us who've been you know 
married, you know, more, more than a couple of years, we know it's easy to fall into routine and it's easy for that staleness, the, the boredom, that routineness to hit. And, you know, some of us can go through dry spells physically, emotionally, spiritually. Um, you know, I mean, every relationship has a, a normal breathing rhythm of approach withdrawal, approach withdrawal. Sometimes those withdrawals get pretty, pretty distant. And, you know, having, having a little novelty, a little sexual play in the bedroom, that can be good sometimes. Not for everybody, and not everybody wants to go there, which is fine, but there can be a benefit there. Uh, for sure, there's a lot of benefit in being able to talk about, to talk about it, and to talk about, here's kind of why I'd like to do this. Here's kind of why I don't want to do that, you know? And you don't have to do it or not do it, but like the, the point is, if you're able to at least talk about it, that's a good sign. Uh, intensity. So uh, a common mistake people make is to mistake intensity for intimacy, but we do like the intensity. Well, it, it kind of goes with the, with the addictive compulsive behavior, uh, seeking out a novel experience, seeking out an intense experience. Uh, so this one's a little precarious because when you say like healthy sex or abundant sex um, means having like this super, super, super extreme orgasm like all of the time. Uh, I mean, I mean, that's fun. I mean, I mean, I know some of us like really like that, that big hot bang, but it's also, <laughs> It's difficult to sustain that. And anyway, uh, you do get to pursue and construct the sexual experience of your ideal fantasy. And you get to do this with a lot of people. If, uh, if we're saying that the purpose of sex is to have fun with it. Uh, what are the cons? What are the downsides of prioritizing uh, fun? So it, it can be harder to establish security, trust, and intimacy, especially if there's a lot of people involved. Just happens. Uh, novelty seeking becomes a must. Then there's some physiological components of this also. Um, in addictions, we talk about tolerance, needing more of the substance to get the same effect. Within uh, sexual addiction, that, not, that tolerance looks like novelty. You tend to need edgier content, more extreme content, more risky, more aggressive content to get the same arousal, the same experience. And, and that comes through novelty, a lot of new experiences. And so if you put uh, pleasure as the most important thing. If you, in order to get there, you tend to need more and more effort, more intensity to get there. Uh, and in that zone, you know, failure to reach that level of intensity can be seen as failure, which can also be really shaming. This sort of sex can tend to be really fantasy-based, like based on what I see in porn, or hey, I just have this fantasy I want to live out, and can you help me live this out? Um, which can be hard for people who don't meet up to the fantasy. You know, I, I would imagine, you know, if I probed the inner depths of all of your souls, you might also, you might all come up with some, something about your own body, your own sexuality that you're insecure about, or some, something about yourself that you compare to someone else and say, and you come up short. It's just a thing we all live with. And, you know, if you have a partner who's like really demanding and they're really demanding for this thing that's completely unattainable, unreachable, then, you know, that creates more shame and creates more distance. Uh, in this paradigm, uh, the person becomes secondary to pleasure. And I think this is probably the, the major risk here, is that if what I really want is the pleasure, then I tend to be determined to get it however I, however I can get it. Or I become open to getting it however I can get it. And in that case, like, you know, caring for the other person, you know, it's the my needs versus your needs, my boundaries versus your boundaries. And, you know, if you don't have an overarching you know, moral code saying I have to prioritize the other person, like you tend to not. 
And so in this, in this mode, um, people get dropped. You know, my partner's not attractive enough. They're not giving me enough sex. They're not available enough. They're, they're wanting too much sex, so I'm going I'm to leave them. Sex for pleasure and recreation uh, as the prime factor. It's really easy to abuse sex and to do it compulsively, and it's really easy to abuse people. I, I, I observe it to be pretty unsustainable. Uh, and probably the biggest thing is that a lot of, a lot of the, the, the mindsets that say, hey, go do it, go try it, go experiment and explore, it's, it's, it's this whole idea that you, you can go do whatever you like. And that this whole like thou mayest, which is all well and good until the thou mayest becomes a thou must. And this is, this is something that happens where you get people who they're feeling like, I need to be that edgy person who does all the things. I need to be that person with the wild kinky fantasies. Like something's wrong with me if I don't, you know, something's wrong with me if all I like is a missionary position. There's that thought out there and there's now growing this pressure in some people to say, I need to be the super sex positive, progressive, do everything um, person. And that's, that's hard to sustain and ultimately damages the person and damages intimacy. Different, different paradigms. So say the primary purpose of sex is for reproduction. Uh, what are some perks of this? Uh, babies. We get, we get babies out of it. And I mean, we like babies. So, uh, and you know, the human race does need babies to, to live. Uh, so there's a lot of conversations about that. Um, <clears throat> this sort of uh, saying sex is primarily for reproduction uh, can encourage a really strong awareness of your body systems and your body functioning. And ideally, it can promote a really body positive approach. Um, you know, it'd be really nice if you know, every young girl was taught before her period came what her period would be and what it was for. And that it's a good thing and that she's beautiful and precious because of it. It would be really great if, you know, boys were taught, you know, before they started having wet dreams, like what, what it is and what was going to happen and what it's for and how to not objectify people. So, you know, if they were taught that, uh, it would be good. Uh, so saying sex is primarily for reproduction can create a clear sense of purpose. You know, we know what this thing is for. We know how to do it. Bang, bang, bang. Good. Um, and there's very clear parameters, which uh, clear parameters can be comforting. They can also be confining, depending on your personality and a whole lot of things. Uh, what are some of the downsides to saying sex is primarily for reproduction? Uh, so it is very specifically a heteronormative paradigm, which, I mean, in this context with this group, is fine. In a broader population, this becomes kind of a tripping point because there's a lot of non-heteronormative couples. And so, um, you know, me talking to you, we can talk about that, and that's fine. You know, me talking to my clients, y'all talking to people in the world. I'm assuming y'all have friends out in the world and you're uh, being out that way. Um, you know, got to be able to to talk with them intelligently about how they live and, you know, not be freaked out by their lifestyles. And, you know, you don't have to agree with them, but it'd be good to be able to talk with them without overtly being offended. Because, um, I mean, nobody ever was persuaded to a conversion by being offended by the person trying to convert them. Uh, sex for reproduction does not necessarily require emotional intimacy. Uh, it can be a very transactional sexual experience, which, I mean, I'm sure some of us have had those. They're awful. Uh, this sort of sex could be boring because it's like, well, I mean, we only do it for this. And then, again, the, the, there's no pillow talk. There's no fun. You know, it should be like missionary position only or whatever the doctor says. Who knows? Uh, potentially, you could have sex less often than desired, especially if you have a, the thought that it should only be done like for on, on conception nights. 
Um, and so there, there's a limiting aspect to this one. You know, if, you, if you're going to go to the extent, like some traditions do, of saying you know, only have sex in order to reproduce, there, there's, there's a lot of limits to that, and some people don't like limits. There's a potential loss of autonomy, particularly for, for a woman. You know, uh, the, you know, holding this paradigm within some traditions might say, yeah, you know, women don't ever use contraceptives, don't ever use birth control, because you need to always be ready to have birth or give birth. Uh, and that's a hard thing, and maybe that's not always a healthy thing. So, so that, that, that's a, that's a tripping point to consider. Uh, and uh, a big one for this one is there, there can be the suggestion that sex, other than for reproduction, is bad. You know, there's this idea that sex is something shameful, it's, that pleasure is bad, we're not meant to have it, when we're, you know, you know, God doesn't like sex, but he concedes to let us do it in order to make more babies. That's kind of problematic because, again, it's, it's, it's shame-inducing, and I don't think it actually is what God intends. Okay, so let's say the primary purpose of sex is for unity and connection. So some of the upsides. So this sort of sex is intimacy-based as opposed to intensity-based. You know, the, the pleasure sex, we want the intensity, we want the orgasm, we want all of the big hot fun, as opposed to having sex that is based on intimacy, that's based on being with the person, on knowing the person. Um, and I would say too, like an intimacy-based sexual relationship is one that is not tied to youth. As you grow, as your partner grows, as you have some more wobbly parts, you know, uh, you can still know each other in, the, in your soul and in your emotion, and you can share more stories. Um, I've heard it compared, you know, you got, say, you know, two, two teenagers to have sex, and you have like, like the intensity of, you know, two hard bodies, and it's, that, that kind of fun compared to, you know, you have two, two people in the 50s who have been having sex together for like 30 years. And it might take more work. It might be more awkward. It might not be as intense. And, you know, like the attraction, the physical attraction may not be quite what it was. Um, but they have 30 years of history together. They bring an emotional depth. They bring trust, hopefully. They bring knowingness. They bring humor and inside jokes. They bring uh, a really sure, you know, like they know how to like, they know what the other person likes, and there's this whole, there's this dynamic of you bring your whole self to the encounter, and that's a beautiful thing. Uh, and that's a thing that older long-term partners can do that younger hookup partners cannot do. Uh, so sex that's primarily about unity and connection, uh, it's, you see the whole person, you have to. You're considering their body, their mind, and their emotions. Uh, this sort of sex also engages all of the senses. You know, porn is a visual thing. You engage, you engage your eyes, you engage your genitals, um, and that's it. It's a very limiting, very limiting experience compared to like having intimacy with someone where you bring your whole person to it. Uh, it's reality-based. Um, you're with a real person, and, and there's a lot of mindfulness here. You're present in your own body, and this is one of the main differences between uh, addictive compulsive sex and, and healthy sex. When, someone, when I'm talking with somebody about sex addiction, they're, they're doing it compulsively, they're out of control, uh, they're not present in their own body, they're not present in relationships, among other things. When you're having uh, a healthy sexual relationship with someone, you know, it's, it's non-compulsive, it's planned, it's intentional, uh, it's mindful, it's present, you're, you're in your body, you're feeling your body, you're okay with your body, you're in your emotions, you're in with the other person's emotions. Uh, that takes a lot of work, and that can be really scary for some people. 
Um, but that's, that's part of this whole idea of like sex is a unifying thing. Uh, high emotional content, you kind of have to talk about feelings and that, that's a good thing. Uh, it's built on a surrounding relationship context and a secure attachment. We don't have time to talk about what secure attachment is, but uh, suffice it to say, um, good sex comes out of good relationships. Uh, if the relationship is not good, then the sex is going to be a troublesome point because, yeah, if the relationship is not good, you kind of might try to escape into like an intensity-based chaotic sex life, um, which can be an effective escape mechanism, but it's not going to be healing or unifying at all. Uh, when sex is primarily for unity and connection, it is okay if it is imperfect and awkward, and it is okay if it is not super fun or intense all of the time. It's even okay if it's inconsistent. Like It's okay if <clears throat> we might go some days, some weeks, some months without it, because primarily we're about the relationship. It's also okay if sex is primarily for unity and connection. It's okay if that sex is very routine. There's some complaints that I, that I hear people, uh, well, when I'm talking with people about like healthy sexuality, there, there's a lot of resistance to like the routine sex. Like, you know, we have sex every Tuesday night, that sort of thing, or like planning it, putting it on the calendar. It's, it's advice that, that marriage couple, that count, uh, it's advice that couples counselors often give, you know, plan for it, talk about it, make sure, make sure you get to it. And there's a lot of people that are resistant to it. I think thinking, thinking about like that image of like, you know, we gleefully, spontaneously run to each other across the room and like, you know, make love on the kitchen table. You know, there's this idea that when it's spontaneous, it's better. I mean, sure. I mean, spontaneous sex is fun, but it's spontaneous. You can't, and if you try to plan for it or regulate that or, or demand it, then it's no longer spontaneous. It's just kind of kinky. So it is okay to say, yeah, we're going to have regular sex. It's going to be on Tuesdays. Uh, whatever, you know, throw in some tacos too. Uh, what are the downsides to saying sex is primarily for unity? It takes more work. It takes more emotional labor. It takes more, you know, mental presence. Um, it takes more emotional risk, more emotional vulnerability. That's scary. That's hard work. That's uncomfortable. It takes more time, you know, to really cultivate the other person, to cultivate, to care for, to nurture their internal state, that takes time, that takes work. It's, it's not a quick thing. There can be quick, accelerated moments within there, like say you have a context of, you know, we've been married 10 years and we've been nurturing each other for at least seven of those. There can be moments when, hey, we decide to spontaneously, you know, do the jiggy. But, um, but it's not always going to be like that. And there's going to be a lot of other times when it'll be like, hey, let's drop some hints and comments in the morning. Let's communicate throughout the day. Let's have a long dinner. Let's cook together. Let's have a long couch time and talk about things that maybe don't have to do with us. Maybe they do have to do with us. Okay, let's do like a long extended like, oh, rub your feet. You rub my back. Then we start, you know, doing the other things. Um, you know, that's sort of, like, that's, that's like your whole day. You know, that's not hookup pace. So if what you want is, you know, hot and fast, this is not for you. Um, talked about this requires vulnerability, which is scary, and presence, which is also scary. Uh, this can require sacrifice, compromise, and putting the other first, and it requires valuing the other. Um, that is hard to do. Uh, this kind of sex also requires self-awareness, assertiveness, clearly stating your own needs, your own desires, and your own, and your own boundaries. Uh, this kind of sex requires that you value your own self, and that is also hard. <coughs> 
to do well. Uh, there's a lot of people that have a resistance to doing this, and there's a lot of people that do this too much. So, so we're, we're, we're all in trouble. So here's this other idea that uh, sex is primarily a sacrament. What does that mean? So in, uh, in Eastern tradition, uh, in the Orthodox tradition, we talk about sacrament as mystery. And there are uh, sacraments in, in church life that are mysteries. We, we understand them a little bit now, and we'll understand them more later. So things like the Eucharist, things like baptism, you know, they, they do something. We don't know what quite how or why, but they do. Um, you know, something like, like, like confession, like ordination. Those are, those are sacraments. Uh, marriage is a sacrament. Um, and in, you know, the, I think it's the book of Ephesians. St. Paul talks about um, husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church. And, there, and so there's this idea that when, and, it, and again, you know, general audience, forgive me, this is a heteronormative idea, but there's this idea that when a man and a woman come together in a marriage covenant, it depicts something about God uh, specifically the, the Christian Trinity. And how does it do that? I don't know. It's a sacrament. It's a mystery, but, but it's there. And, you know, I'm, I'm under the belief that sex is a part of that, that when uh, a married man and a married woman, married in the church, um, they come together in sexual union, that something about that says something about God, about the character of God, um, which gets super, super wonky if... It, if one partner is not faithful or one partner is abusive or the partners are not loving each other and they're not serving each other and they're being really demanding and obsessive. Uh, it's really easy to uh, tarnish that image and it's really easy to mess up the sacrament. So, so, so it's precarious, but, 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 there, but there is that there. So what happens when we say sex is primarily a sacramental act? So again... There's clear parameters that go with that because in, in order to be the sacrament, it has to be done a certain way. So again, uh, this is not a statement for the general podcast audience, but it is, um, it is coming out of the specifically Orthodox Christian tradition. Um, there is the sense, though, that when you view sex as a, as a sacramental act, that it, you are connected to something bigger than yourself and you're participating in something cosmic, universal, divine. And that can be kind of cool, especially when it gets hard and difficult and discouraging. There's this idea of, um, you know, in the Orthodox tradition, we talk about theosis, and in Protestants talk about sanctification, this idea of growing in holiness. When you put limits on yourselves, when you put yourselves through effort, when you embrace the difficulties of marriage and of, you know, being faithful to one partner, you know, the difficulties of monogamy, uh, there's something sanctifying about that. It's hard and it's limiting and it can be done in a really shaming way, but there's also ways that um, our suffering is for our salvation. Um, and that's a, that's a tricky concept to think about and it's not one that we like because it means we have to suffer. But, but what if suffering were actually a good thing? What if suffering were actually good for us and, uh, and it was a primary means of being saved? Then, it, then maybe we could be free to suffer well and we wouldn't always have to be escaping it. Then maybe we wouldn't be so compulsive all of the time. Uh, seeing sex as sacrament, um, that sort of system allows for periods of abstinence as well as periods of sexual frustration to be equally part of sexual abundance uh, and equally as good. 
um, a lot of these other paradigms, like sex for pleasure, sex for unity, there's kind of this assumption that sex must happen, and then it must happen with some regularity, and that if there's abstinence, then either you're sexually anorexic, you're sexually aversive, or you're being oppressed or something, and they see it as a problem. Uh, and that can be kind of limiting and, and confining uh, and even oppressive. Um, that's where the, the thou mayest has become the thou must, and that's hard. Um, whereas in, in this view, I see this allows for sexual activity and sexual celibacy and can allow for them both to be good and to both have value. Uh, seeing sex primarily a sacrament, uh, it does create, it does tend to create trust and intimacy with the other partner because you both have to be in this spiritual practice together and, you know, you have to do all of the attachment work, all of the intimacy work and, uh, but also in this context of other spiritual disciplines and a shared spiritual discipline is an extremely intimate thing. It's extremely bonding. Uh, sex to sacrament also will tend to decenter sexual preoccupation. One of the things I notice in the conversation in a lot of contexts is that uh, everybody talks about sex. Everybody, everybody's thinking about it all the time. I mean, goodness, for me, look at me. I'm talking about sex to a group of strangers. Um, <laughs> I like talking about sex. Uh, and I'm a little preoccupied with it. You know, my practice is a little preoccupied with it. I think a lot of aspects of our culture are kind of preoccupied with it, which isn't all bad. Some of it's response to a time when nobody talked about sex ever, and that was not good either. Um, we need to talk about it. It needs to be out in the open. Uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be the center of everything. And I think seeing sex as a sacramental act can put it back in its proper place sometimes. Uh, what are some downsides to seeing sex as sacrament? Uh, there, again, there's very specific parameters, and that's really limiting. It's really demanding of you, and you don't get to do everything you want, and you don't get all of the pleasure and intensity all of the time. And some people don't want that, so that, that's, that's the downside. Uh, this is also only really meaningful in a tradition that effectively couples periods of abstinence and sexual renunciation with spiritual disciplines. Um, what I understand about how sex works compared to, you know, sexual uh, compared to spiritual disciplines, you know, we'll say you know healthy sexuality. Sure, we can get on board with uh, this. This con this con this con yeah, this comes up a lot when talking about sexual recovery. You know, it's pretty easy to persuade people the anonymous hookups. Bad idea. It's not too hard to convince people that porn. Bad idea. Um, it, it doesn't. Ha it's not too too hard to con to persuade a a married couple that, yeah, maybe, you know, compulsive masturbation in a married context, not so good. Um, but there's some questions. You know, for the single people who are like, do I stay single? Do I never have sex again? Do I not masturbate ever again? Like, that's, uh, that's a really, that, that's a big concept to wrestle with, and it's really difficult. And a lot of people say, no, you have to have an orgasm at some point. Like, you ha and you have to do it. And then there's a way, there's approaches to do it, and there's some good arguments. But... Uh, but then there are people who will say, no, um, I want to do, you know, I'm single, I want to stay celibate, I don't want to masturbate. And there's people that will look at that as like kind of weird and maybe even kind of alarming. Um, and honestly, I would too, with one particular exception, if you are using your sexual renunciation, because that's what that is, uh, as, as a vehicle for spiritual discipline. I would say the only safe way to s renounce sex permanently is if you're coupling it with a prayer discipline. If you're not using your sexual abstinence as a means of enhancing your prayer life, don't bother. 
so some approaches we could we could take with that, for especially for especially for the single people, uh, we could say, well, we could debate: is it okay? Is it okay to at least masturbate? Um, and some people would say yes. You know, if you can do it with you know not to porn, not to fantasy, primarily to to you know in a nurturing, self-soothing sort of way. Some people will argue that that that's okay. You know, some people will argue that it's not. But there's that. Um, there are there could be ways of um, taking that sexual tension and channeling it outwards into like creativity, social justice, hospitality, a lot of other a lot of other connected relationships. Uh, physical fitness can be a thing too. Uh, there's also this idea too, um, and this is where we can you know t take a peek at what our what what our um, what our monastic bro uh, brothers and sisters are doing. Is you know they they're pursuing they're they're taking up this call of saying yeah we're we're going to practice a sexual renunciation uh, and we're going to learn to pray we're going to pray always as best we can and we're going to work to master our desires, um, that's hard, and something to keep in mind if you're going to if you're going to do this is it's your spiritual values in direct competition with you with your bodily bodily urges, um, and that's hard. That is that is the flesh that that is the torture that you talked about, and I, I I would not undertake that lightly because it's very costly. Um, you know, if you're going to pay that cost, make sure that there's a prize at the end. You know, that prize. You know, it's it's that idea of you know holiness. I'm growing. I'm growing in Christ likeness. I'm learning to pray, uh, in learning to master your desires. That that's. Kind of the point of it is to gain that inner inner clarity, that that spiritual clarity. Um, uh, but and again, if that's not your goal, and if you don't have a spiritual director to walk you through that, and if you're not really interested in that, then I'd say don't push yourself so hard. Like, I mean, you know, take care of yourself. Don't be compulsive, um, but you know, give give yourself some some grace there. Um, and again, I'm not your spiritual director. I'm not your pastor. Um, I'm a counselor, uh, so that's 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 my perspective. But um, but it is hard, and I and I totally get that. It's it's really hard. So are these major purposes of sex mutually exclusive? I'm gonna say probably not entirely. Um, no, they're they're not mutually exclusive, because um, sex can definitely be pleasurable in all of these. You know, there can definitely be reproduction. Um, through all of these, you know, there can be a unity in all of these. Um, uh, sex to sacrament is, is a fairly unique sort of thing. So, um, again, if you're, it, it all depends on how you rank them. And they, they cannot all be equally, equally weighted. Um, but, you know, they, they, they overlap, I think. Um, okay, so I'm going to race through a couple, a couple general ideas. So, so the World Health Organization has a definition about what sexual health is, but you can read it later. It's online. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking too. I was gonna like bring that in, and be like, okay, here's what it is. But what does that really mean? We're real people and um, not statisticians. Uh, more general ideas. So, so using the the abundant life motif. So I said, okay. So if the what? So that's the counter the counterpart to abundance sex, we'll, we'll call it sparsity sex, uh, or like the, the, the very unhealthy sexuality. So recapping some of what we talked about, some characteristics of that, uh, that sort of sex, it's, it's non-intimate, you're not really connecting, not really knowing, it's very transactional and utilitarian, 
um, this is this is uh, a lot of what you see in hookup culture. Um, we're gonna meet. We're gonna consent. Consent is big. Uh, we're gonna say, I like your body. You like my body. Let's let's do our thing and call it good. And no emotions, no fuss. Um, sparsity sex or unhealthy sex, it can be really compulsive, and that's where it's done out of control. Uh, this is where uh, you're saying, I don't want to do this, I don't value this, I don't like this, but I can't stop myself. Um, you know, anybody who's experienced any sort of uh, like addiction recovery work, um, you know, you, you know what this feels like. You know, if you're in recovery for alcohol, drugs, eating, um, porn, etc., like you know what this feels like. This idea of like, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it. Well, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. You know, why does that happen? That's a compulsion. There's a brain thing going on. Uh, it tends to be out of control. Uh, it's mindless and dissociative. So we talked about sex as an escape. Um, like if I'm if I'm acting out, I'm in a trance. I'm not feeling my my body. I'm not feeling my feelings. My world is the size of my screen or my needle or my glass, whatever it is. Um, and and I'm not connected to myself or to others. Uh, I'm also disconnected from others and I'm isolated. Um, sparsity sex, it's emotionally and psychologically load-bearing. Uh, what that means is that it's not, well, I mean, sex is never a neutral experience. It's always loaded. Uh, there's some people, though, um, you know, sex, porn, acting out, that's how they, that's how they, that's how they, that's how they live. That's how they survive. That's how they can withstand their own experience. Um, they don't engage in sex to feel better. They ex engage in sex to feel less, less of their lives, less of their bodies, less of their emotions. Um, and when that's why you do it, that's, that's problematic because it gets tarnished and tainted really fast. So it's like sex for coping. If I'm using sex primarily to cope with stress or relationship tension rather than like doing something healthy or resolving my relationship conflicts, um, that's using sex for unhealthy purposes. Um, sparsity sex, it's intensity-based, it's fantasy-based, it requires some novelty. So there's just like a, a lot of work that goes into maintaining that. Uh, sparsity sex will take risks with your physical well-being and with the relationship. Uh, it can be really manipulative, really coercive, uh, and it's also exploitive, violating, and opportunistic. You know, uh, I want you... You've got nice boobs. You've got a nice butt. I, w I want that. You know, that's that can be the attitude of the sparsity sex, and it's very much. You know, there's a lot of people that talk about the best part being the hunt for the right target, and it's all about conquest. And ultimately, I think it's dehumanizing, um, because you know, you're not seeing the person, you're not seeing their life, their their mind, their emotions. You're seeing like one part of their body and focused on that, and and for one one moment, you know, the heat of the orgasm, and then you're done. There's no human there. There's no relationship. There's no oneness. In contrast, so we'll say <clears throat> the, the healthy sex or the abundant life sex, we'll say uh, this sort of sex is very, there's a very strong personal component to it in that you do have to kind of individualize this and figure out what does this mean for you. Um, you know, what's your gender? What's your age bracket? What's your relationship history? You know, what are your emotional needs? You know, for some people, healthy sex means yeah, having having more of it and being able to explore and do some fun things. For some people, it's like no, I'm gonna have less of it and just you know keep it keep it keep it vanilla. Um, and then some people like um, some people do find a lot of safety in in more of an abstinence celibate uh, lifestyle. 
Um, healthy sex can be flexible, uh, marked by emotional resilience. So, you know, maybe I have like one plan, I want to try this one thing, and like we're going to do it like on Tuesday, but that doesn't work out because this is or that. So we end up doing it, you know, Wednesday, and it's like a different, whole different scenario, but like we connect through it, you know, and, and that's okay. Or like, I'm really looking forward to like having sex with you, and then like it doesn't work out, but like we're, we're talking through it, and like I feel like really emotionally nurtured, even though I'm kind of frustrated, you know. That, and, that, and that can be okay. Um, healthy sex is, again, connective and intimate. Two people bringing their whole selves, their vulnerabilities, their emotions, their, their, their authentic selves. Um, uh, healthy sex is generous and mutual. It's you know, two people giving to each other, two people wanting to, to, to please the other person. Um, and you know, ideally, two people coming into it um, by mutual agreement. Um, that's a little bit different than both people being just like hot, you know, hot, passionate, hungry for each other. There, there is room for pushing yourself into the encounter for the sake of the other person. You know, ideally, you're doing that really mindfully and really carefully. Um, there's uh, an empoweredness to this where you're like, hey, I can safely be with this person. Um, this sort of sex is based on reality, like we talked about. You know, it's, it's me a real person and you a real person. And maybe, and I've conditioned my mind and my body to become aroused to you, not to an image on the screen, not to any other person, um, but but you know just to you. When that happens, there there is the risk that that can get ki kind of you know boring, or or maybe a little overly familiar. But there's also a way that there's a lot of trust and there's a lot of ease and a lot of security that that goes with that, and. You know, we do notice, you know, people, you know, men especially who look at a lot of porn, they have a lot of partners, you know, you know, at younger and younger ages, you know, early 20s, they're having erectile dysfunction, you know, and that has to do with their body, like, not knowing what to respond to anymore. So, uh, healthy sex can be curious, can be fun and exciting and exploratory. There's nothing wrong with that, really. Um, healthy sex, so, so different than, like, unhealthy sex takes risks with your body, does all, like, the, the edgy, dangerous stuff and takes risks with relationships, all the betrayals and everything. Uh, healthy sex takes risks of vulnerability uh, while safeguarding the bodies in the relationships. So here's what I'll say, I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling needy. I'm feeling safe with you. I, I feel like I love you. Um, and here's something about me. Let me tell you what my inner state is. Let me, let me hear your emotions. Let me be with you in that way. Uh, that's really risky, um, but it's that kind of risk that creates intimacy. Uh, and we'll say healthy sex is an act of intimacy and trust and vulnerability that is the result of consistent, open, honest, direct, informed communication. Uh, so there's a lot of talking that goes around healthy sex and a lot, of, a lot of work. It's not how it is in the movies. We don't just rip off our clothes and make love on the kitchen table. Um, we don't have that special white sheet that <laughs> doesn't cover both people properly. Um, it's very much, we'll talk through it. You know, do you like this? Do you like that? Can you do this? Oh, let's shift. Oh, let's shift again. Oh, the sheets fell off. You know, you know, can we turn on the fan? Can we turn off the fan? You know, there's a lot of talking and negotiation, and it, it takes time. And when a couple can kind of be in that awkward messiness together and it's comfortable, that's really freeing because you don't have to impress anyone. Uh, you just have to be present. So, so a couple last thoughts about what healthy sex is. So we're going to say... Especially in, especially in a Christian context. Um, it's important to remember our bodies are good. They're made in the image of God. They get saved along with the rest of us. And sex is good too. 
Sex is a gift to us. It's part of the sacrament. It's part of what depicts something about God. So when we, when we have sex, um, you know, in the Christian tradition, we'll say should be one married man, one married woman. Um, and it should be done with no shame, no fear, uh, no manipulation, no, co- no coercion. Um, should be done with trust and intimacy, vulnerability. I would say, you know, especially in a Christian rhythm, a healthy sexual rhythm should allow for periods of sexual activity and periods of sexual abstinence. You know, even, you know, St. Paul, he'll talk about, yeah, sometimes take a break by mutual consent, you know, for prayer and then come together again. So it's okay if it's not happening. You know, especially as you get older, it, d- it doesn't happen as much, you know. Not since 1983. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, when it's okay for that to happen, that allows for some freedom and some flexibility, and it kind of takes some pressure off of people. It does mean you have to work through, like, the frustrations and the feelings, and you have to actually take care of yourself in some other ways. Uh, but that's just healthy Christian adulting anyway, so. Um, okay. So freedom to have or to not have sex, uh, bringing your whole self to a relationship regarding your body, sex and pleasure is good, but powerful, and they're the best when mastered. Um, again, sex, touch, affection, they're, they're loaded concepts. They're never neutral. So you know, even, even in, a, in what we'd consider the sanctified married context, you, know, you do it carefully, you do it mindfully. You, you don't be careless with your partner's body or emotions ever. Yeah, factoring in that there's married people, there's single people. I would say, you know, healthy sexuality allows for, you know, sexual activity and celibacy as viable lifestyle options. You know, you can thrive both ways. It's going to look way different. <laughs> I know you're laughing. Um, but, uh, you know, this is also what, you know, but this, is, this has been, you know, the, the, the church has been wrestling with this for, for 2,000 years, figuring out, okay, we want to master our bodies. We want to master our passions. How do we do that? What happens when we do? Um, and they found a lot of rewards there. Very costly rewards, no joke. It's very hard, um, and I'm not at all going to minimize that. And uh, that, you know, that's okay. There's also a way, though, where you know, suffering is part of our salvation. You know, and that's again a very specifically Christian idea. You know, not everybody outside of our tradition is going to go with that, but um, it's okay. And when and when I think when we allow for suffering. You know, and then we could debate: should we consider sexual frustration to actually be suffering? Um, you know, when we allow for suffering to be okay and to be good and to not have to escape it, I think that actually gives us some more freedom and some more empowerment because we get to be more resilient people that way. We love your feedback and invite you to share your thoughts about this conversation. Also, we'd appreciate your review and five-star rating on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Share your thoughts through email at smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us at facebook.com slash smartcouncilpodcast. Please consider supporting this podcast with a financial donation through patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Smart Council's theme music is by Trent Press. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. This episode was mastered by Stephen Black. Thanks again for listening, and let's keep the conversation going. 